Right, well, good evening, everyone. My name is Richard Bronk. I'm a visiting fellow at the European Institute here at the London School of Economics. And it's my great pleasure to welcome you here to the, this, this discussion panel on music, poetry, common foundations, which I'll be chairing. Now, the session forms part of the LSE's seventh Space for Thought Literary Festival, which has been going on since Monday this week and concludes tomorrow with a number of events centred on the theme of foundations, the foundations of knowledge, society and art. Now, we're hoping to podcast this event, so please ensure that your phones are on silent, but you're welcome to tweet, and the suggested hashtag is LSE LitFest. Now, our discussion tonight explores the links between music and poetry. These two types of art appear to differ in some important respects, of course. Poetry is, after all, largely a verbal art form that today, at least, is usually read in private and associated with the exploration of highly personal feelings and meanings, while music is more often associated with large public performances by orchestras and players, often in vast concert halls and arenas. And music appears to be rooted in abstract mathematical patterns of universal appeal rather than in culturally specific verbal languages. But when you think about it, these two art forms, in fact, have large amounts in common. Poetry, like music, is, in fact, often performed in public. And music is also frequently enjoyed and interpreted alone in our rooms. Poetry shares with music a reliance on rhythm, breathing, abstract patterns of sound, and the emergence of tight form from apparently limitless possibility. Music shares with poetry meanings that come from deep and often culturally specific resonances of its rhythms and moods. What is more, much of the music we listen to accompanies poetic lyrics or libretto in a union of words and music. Think of the combination of religious poetry and music in the great masses of Bach or the requiems of Mozart and Brahms, or the combination in Britain's war requiem of his haunting music with the searing poetry of Wilfred Owen, or the importance of the words, the lyrics, in the songs of Edith Piaf, Je ne regrette rien. The very word lyric or lyrics does, of course, point to the close links between music and poetry. Indeed, the derivation of the word lyric from the Greek word for a string lyre reminds us of the fact that in ancient Greece, much poetry was sung to the accompaniment of the lyre. Now, to discuss the common features and foundations of music and poetry and how far the two art forms complement one another in some of the greatest unions of music and poetry, we are lucky to be joined by three speakers who are superbly qualified to talk on this subject. The first is the renowned poet Fiona Sampson, whom some of you may have been lucky enough to hear at a a poetry reading in last year's festival. Fiona's latest collection of poetry, Coles Hill, will be on sale after the event and is among 25 books of poetry, criticism and philosophy of language to her name. Fiona is Professor of Poetry at Roehampton University, but intriguingly, her early training was as a concert violinist and this may explain her fascination with the musical aspects of poetry. Our second speaker is Armand Dangor, Fellow in Classical Literature at Jesus College, Oxford. I first met Armand when we were classic students together more than a third of a century ago, and one of the many things that made Armand stand out in his cohort 
was that he had already spent several years studying the piano and cello at the Royal College of Music. Armand has a fascinating book on the Greeks and the new on sale outside, but he's currently working on a project to bring to life the sounds and effects of ancient Greek music. And finally, we will hear from the acclaimed tenor Ian Bostridge. Ian is currently Humanitas Professor of Classical Music at the University of Oxford, where he enjoyed an academic career in the past. But he's mostly famous as an opera singer, and above all for his renditions of Schubert's songs. Ian has a CBE, and his recordings have won all the major international record prizes and been nominated for 13 Grammys. He's recently brought out this beautiful and fascinating book, Schubert's Winter Journey, on sale outside, which explores the meanings and resonances of Schubert's Winterreise and the relationship between its musical form and the poetry of Müller. Now, the running order for this discussion is that each speaker will speak for about 12 to 15 minutes. We will then have a short discussion among the panellists for about 10 minutes, followed by 20 minutes of question and answer with you, the audience. So if you have any questions, and I really hope that you will, please save them up for then when we'll have a roving microphone. So without further ado, please welcome our speakers, and first of all, Fiona Sampson. I'm going to start by revealing that I'm a Mac user and therefore I'm banned by the LSE equipment from playing you um, any clips. But the first one I was going to play you and I would like you to imagine is the afternoon express train from, which is a contradiction in fact, um, from Bucharest to Budapest passing through the Transylvanian um, uh, plateau uh, around dusk, a trip that always reminds me of Bella Bartok's Evening in the Village. So a little moment to perhaps think about a train passing quite slowly through that landscape. A journey is both what separates and what connects the points on that journey. This is what's hypnotic about train travel. It's like being told or shown a story. E.M. Forster called this the naked worm of time. But he was wrong when he said in aspects of the novel that the and then and then of one thing happening after another is a purely narrative problem. Time is not a narrative problem. It's much larger than that. We could call it a being problem. Filmmakers like Kiarostami or Pasolini show us this when they hold a shot for what seems like too long. They show us that things happening takes time And so does our watching things happening. This sense of something happening, being created, if you like, through time, is, I believe, fundamental to both poetry and music. It's fundamental not only because time is where music and poetry happen, but because that happening is what they are. I'm interested in musical forms in poetry, not purely for technical reasons like their joint origins, whether in lyric or epic, about which Armand is talking this evening, nor purely for autobiographical reasons, which Richard has touched on, but because for the poet, the notion of abstract form entering the text as structural meaning is so seductive. It allows her or him to experience and to try to work with the movement of form more shamelessly, or at least wholeheartedly than when stuck with the notion that language simply denotes more or less prettily 
more or less evocatively. The phrasal breath, chromaticism, register, and density are all forms of this kind, it seems to me. But I stumbled upon this fundamental resemblance between music and poetry, something prior even to metre and rhythm, through doing readings, especially when I was in some way on automatic pilot, when I knew my reading pathway through a poem very well, and it no longer felt as though I was saying something. Reading felt exactly as it had when I was a violinist, as though I was making forms in time and in the space of the venue that confessed nothing about me. I simply sat inside them, impersonal yet intensely present, as a performer is, making them work. But I'm not trying to think about performing or listening to performances, but about music and poetry as they always are going on in time. To read a poem on the page is, after all, to read it line by line. A musical phrase, remember, plays through in the mind's ear, something that can be a torture in the case of earworms. I suspect we do sometimes have simultaneous mental experiences, particularly emotional ones, but what would it be like to experience music or poetry, whether or not out loud, without time? A kind of conceptual and temporal black hole into which the whole of Parsifal or Gilgamesh was fantastically crushed. Music students begin by thinking about Bach's chorales, apparently metrically unadventurous and characterised by heftily columnar progressions. These are short hymn-like pieces, some are sung, some instrumental, which can sound undemonstrative, even impenetrable. Their texts tend to draw general conclusions, thy will be done, in thee we trust, that can only be filled with meaning by the particular personal processes, for example, a struggle to understand or to be reconciled, involved in getting to the Amen. There can be no spiritual shortcuts. Or, to put it another way, were the rehearsal room door to swing open for a moment, or the radio briefly to tune past, we might hear an isolated, complex chord, but miss the meaning. While the chorales perform a series of, in fact, astonishing tensions and syntheses, we have to follow or sing through these progressions in order to hear them. For example, in the chorale I was going to play you, BWV4, uh, Christ Lay in Death Chains, an Easter chorale on Luther's words, which is also the basis of a cantata, the ambivalence with which the Christian contemplates Good Friday... Christ, crucified and lying bound by death, is not yet resurrected, is tellingly portrayed by a seasick kind of oscillation between major and minor. Only faith, at this stage, can secure the closing tears to Picardy, that sideways slip into a major chord to create a resolution, which always sounds, by definition, unearned. Musical sense, in other words, is created horizontally through musical grammatical successions, which are every bit as fiercely fought for in, for example, serialism or traditional music, as in Western classical harmonic traditions. Music is one thing leading to another. Without those connectors, it's a car alarm, a squeaking wheel, something shouted at a particular pitch. Same hold true for language. Thinking about which too often suffers from the St. Augustine model of words as a series of labels for things we experience, quotes, when they, my elders, named some object and accordingly moved towards something, 
I saw this and grasped that the thing was called by the sound they uttered when they meant to point it out. Now that's a definition from Confessions that's been made famous by Wittgenstein who took it as the start of his philosophical investigations. In a Bach chorale, prayer is a process that must be gone through but every form of thought, poetry not accepted, must also be gone through, for as Jonathan Miller has said, language is successive. Still, Bach's performance of the individual struggle with God questions, as we might call them, does have particular analogies with the admittedly varied poetries that attempt something similar, from George Herbert to Thomas Traherne, from Herbert Lomas's Letters in the Dark, or even Donald Hall's struggle to come to terms with the death of his wife in The Painted Bed. Take the horizontal harmonic strategy of Gerard Manley Hopkins' terrible sonnets. In Carrion Comfort, a word order that wrenches itself away from convention doesn't interrupt but intensifies lament. No, I'll not Carrion Comfort despair, not feast on thee, nor untwist, slack they may be, these last strands of man in me, or most weary cry, I can no more. I can, can something, hope, wish, not choose not to be. The three knots of the first line there, not, I'll not carry in comfort, despair, not feast on thee, <coughs> passing through a double negative and beyond, include the very first vowel of the poem, which refuses the conventional no, no, I'll not. And by that refusal amplifies itself, its ot catching and tangling with comfort. Reprised in the fourth line, however, these repeated knots settle back into a simple double negative, and they resist suicide in the barest of terms. Among the many other sensations crammed into these rhyming seven stress lines are repeated lips-shut M's and exclamatory zero O's, which don't just mimic sudden speechlessness, but repeatedly open and shut the vowel music of the poem so that we experience each word and realisation. It's a sonic and semantic emphasis that underlines how each word is gained from what came before it. Silence, incomprehension, the absence of God. I've talked elsewhere about silence as an anti-poem, something that threatens to overcome the text. One way to deal with that apparent danger may be to appropriate silence as a tabula rasa, a stage that's ready for language. In his essay, Warflowers, the late Irish-American poet Michael Donaghy evokes a kinship between poetry and dancing, which he sees as choreographing space, the dance hall floor, rather, as an indi- rather than as individual self-expression. But if these shapes do exist, then they must do so not only as diagram or explanation, but also within the dance or the poem itself. The ratio that measures a piece must also be in the piece itself. The poem must articulate such forms along with the poem's expressive intent. Poems, then, a form of intentional and structural cohabitation between the intentional and the expressive and the impersonal or formal. We could call these forms the poem's temporal architecture. Our eye-bound, screen-leg culture finds it easier to conceptualise abstract form in space than time, from National Trust garden visits to Channel 4's grand designs. We've been trained in the satisfactions of visual abstractions. 
So it's liberating and simplifying to find that we can conceptualise abstract form as existing in time in the same way that it exists in space. For in calling architecture frozen music, Goethe was re-articulating an idea that already had a long history. Plato, Plotinius, St Augustine and Aquinas all suggest that the same ratios necessarily please both ear and eye. The Renaissance architect Leon Battista Alberti said, I conclude that the same numbers by means of which the agreements of sounds affect our ears with delight are the very same which please our eyes and our minds. A century later, Andrea Palladio used musical ratios to give his buildings harmonious proportions. Since the 18th century Palladian style is named for his neoclassicism, it's no surprise to find the golden section apparent in so much of that architecture, underpinning harmoniousness in music as well. For the classically trained violinist, the home form is a sonata which dominates classical and romantic repertoire. Early in his or her musical formation, this structure not itself far from the golden section, introduces as axiomatic the principle that it is musical materials and the relations between them that generate music. You can't have the whole piece that would develop without the opening theme. Given modernism's analogous sense of the text as material to be worked with and to work itself out, perhaps no coincidence that while Eliot takes on the exploded sonata form of the late Beethoven quartets, Basil Bunting's sonatas, including Brig Flats, are based on early sonata form, while Ezra Pound described Ulysses as a sonata. Words move, music moves, only in time, as T.S. Eliot said in Burt Norton. Frozen at any single moment, a poem would be nothing more than a single phoneme, lacking both form and sense. Its architectural qualities formed through time, in other words, just like music's. Despite the denotative functions of language, this structural relationship with time means that poetic form, like musical structure, can be built from mathematical proportions or other pre-semantic forces, such as escalation or closure, without posing any threat to the metrical or expressive functions of a poem, since abstraction is by definition not competing for those stakes. It's a categorical difference that allows for poetic cohabitation. These are fine words, but what do they mean in practice? Perhaps something rather like being able to build the kind of poem where meaning is the music which moves to and fro, as in this little poem about sound with which I'm going to end. It's a poem called Neighbours. Neighbours. Sound arrives in waves, but the voices of my neighbours at the paddock gate arrive clear and flattened by the grass as all my life they've sounded singular and clear. Voices in the great room of outdoors, voices that will guide me when I'm old as when in early memory they arrived while I was lost among the gold and green in a garden with snapdragons and pansies, there Dragon faces, black and gold, these were new as I was new. Thank you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to say something 
<clears throat> first about Greek poetry, ancient Greek poetry, then something about ancient Greek music, and then I'm going to ask what difference music makes to words. In a sense, when we're talking about the foundations, common foundations of music and poetry, there's a bit of a tautology for a classicist because all ancient Greek poetry is music. So we have to ask ourselves, what do we mean by that? Well, I mean, Richard mentioned the word lyrical, a word lyric. We talk about lyrics, we mean words, the words to songs. But of course the word lyric comes from lyra, a lyre, the instrument to which songs were, were sung, the melodic and rhythmical elements which become poetry slash song. These things are not differentiated in ancient Greece. And in the period from 800, roughly, from the 8th century BC through to the 4th century, all the texts that survive as what we might call poetry, Homer, Pindar, Sappho, Euripides, Aeschylus, the tragedians, all these texts in those 400 years are either music, they were either composed and devised to be sung, or some part of them was indeed sung. In the case of tragedies, for example, the choruses of tragedies were sung and danced to the accompaniment of a double pipe, something called the aulos. And, amazingly enough, we even have tiny scraps of ancient papyrus with musical notation uh, devised by the ancient Greeks sometime in the mid-5th century, which we can transcribe into modern notation and hear as music. Now, amazingly, this is remarkably little known and remarkably little attended to, even in a university with a great tradition of classics like Oxford, where we study texts, we study words, we study philology, we study Homer and Pindar and Sappho and the tragedians, but nobody says, it seems to me, enough or loudly enough, this is all music and we know what it sounded like. And we know what it sounded like partly because music isn't just melody. I mean, the problem is, you know, people say Greek music is lost, ancient Greek music is lost. They're talking about melody. But of course music is not just melody. In fact, more important than melody, the Greeks themselves were clear, more important than melody is rhythm. And rhythm is absolutely inscribed into the words of Greek poetry. The rhythms are the syllables of words, which were conventionally considered to be either long or short syllables. And those syllables then create patterns, some immensely complicated patterns, really interesting patterns. I mean, we're not talking about the four-bar phrase, which something like 90% of all Western music consists of, but patterns 
which are very intricate combinations of these long and short syllables, which, as I say, conventionally, a long syllable takes twice as long as a short one. But, of course, in performance, that's never going to be the case. Uh, So, when we're talking about Greek music, in fact, I would say when we talk about music, we should always bear in mind that rhythm is deep down, the core, the kernel. Uh, In fact, melody doesn't work. It wouldn't work without the movement that is brought about by rhythm. The movement of melody itself creates rhythm. So um, what sort of rhythms are we talking about? Well, a lot of you will be familiar with the idea of the hexameter, the six-bar, as it were, pattern which is used in ancient epic. The dactylic hexameter, it's so-called. I mean, these, unfortunately, these terms make them sound like dinosaurs. But uh, uh, a dactyl simply is a pattern of syllables consisting of one long one followed by two short ones. Da, da, da. So six of those make your dactylic hexameter. With which, uh, which is the rhythm of the earliest, greatest poetry of ancient Greece, the epics of Homer. 16,000 verses in dactylic hexameter for Homer's Iliad, 12,000 dactylic hexameters in his Odyssey. And that same rhythm, copied by the Romans six centuries later, to produce the great epic of Virgil, for example, Virgil's Aeneid, in that rhythm. Da, 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 da. So, Homer's Iliad begins with the words, sing, sing, goddess of the anger of Achilles, son of Peleus. In Greek, There's the rhythm, the da, 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 da. But sometimes a da-da-da, a long followed by two shorts, a crotchet followed by two quavers, becomes two crotchets, da-da. And at the end of each verse, it always does. That is a cadence, a musical cadence at the end of every verse, of every dactylic hexameter sung by Homer. And we know that Homer did sing, so he accompanied himself And there are wonderful scenes in Homer's Odyssey in which he describes the bard taking his forminx, it's called, a four-stringed lyre, down from the peg and singing, accompanying himself to the strumming of his lyre. Homer sang this rhythm to a melody. And that melody was also inherent in the sound of ancient Greek. Ancient Greek is a pitch-inflected language. In other words, when when it was spoken, the voice went up and down in pitch. And we're told by an ancient grammarian that the, the interval was about a fifth. The voice went up and down within the interval of a fifth. So a word like beautiful in Greek, kalos, the voice rises on the second syllable. Now, it may not rise a fifth, kalos. That could be kalos. 
that's about a third dada. But that's there in the language. And there are about 50-odd scraps of ancient notated music. And the analysis shows that more than 70% of the syllables of the words in Greek to which melody is set show a conformity where the syllable is on a raised pitch, so the melodic line is on a higher pitch as well. So they observed, the Greeks observed the sense that their language had a natural melodic interpretation, just as it has a natural rhythmical interpretation. So yes, you put the rhythms of the words, the long and the short syllables that are uh, deeply inherent in the language, you put them into patterns. And as I say, complicated ones. The dactylic hexameters are one of the least complicated, the simplest. It's the one we all start with when we're learning so-called Greek meter. The Greek meter is simply rhythm reduced to a system. The rhythm is still there. Hearing that rhythm, and occasionally, as I say, the da, 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 becoming da, da. Now, can you imagine a line of six da, da sounds? Well, there is one in the Iliad when Achilles is mourning the death of his beloved Patroclus. And it goes like this. Psychen kikleskon patrokleos deloyo. There you are, long crotchet sounds. None of this dum diddy dum diddy dum. So when Achilles is mourning, the rhythm takes on that slow, insistent, repetitive, long beat. But then, in the Odyssey, in Book 11, there's uh, the story of Sisyphus in the underworld pushing the boulder up the hill. And that, too, Homer gives us mainly in those long, 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 long beats. But then the boulder gets to the top of the hill. And, of course, remember, Sisyphus is the sinner. He is condemned to doing this all eternity in hell. Push the boulder up to the top of the hill... It rolls down again. And when Homer tells the story, he says in Greek, the top of the hill, then the boulder, the the heedless boulder clattered back down to the plain. And the line in Greek is, fantastic clatter. There you get the use the artistic use of the dactylic rhythm and then the slower, contracted rhythm when the da-da-da-da-da-da becomes da-da-da-da, used for intensely effective purposes. So rhythm there, deeply in the poetry of the Greeks, and I've started with Homer because Homer is where everything begins in ancient Greek literature and indeed in Western literature, we shouldn't be talking about literature, we should be talking about song. These are songs. When Homer says, sing, goddess of the anger, he is instructing the goddess, the muse, to sing through him. And when Virgil copies this and says, I sing of arms and the man, he sings of the story of Aeneas who founded Rome, 
arms of the man, arma virumque cano troiae qui primus aboris. There's your dactylic line. The man who first came from the shores of Troy. When he says that, everybody says, oh, well, that's just a figure of speech. He's not picking up his lyre like Homer and plucking it and singing along. But it's not a figure of speech because it's the rhythm. The rhythm is there. I am singing of arms and the man. Now, a great poet like Dryden, who translated the Aeneid, begins with those words. Now, the rhythm of Dryden's poem is the so-called iambic, pentameter. De-dum, 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 de-dum. But we don't say, arms and the man I sing, who forced by fate. We don't say it in five iams. We say, arms and the man I sing, who forced by fate and Juno's and haughty Juno's unrelenting hate. So when we start Dryden's translation of Virgil's Aeneid, we begin it with a dactyl. Da, 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 da. Arms and the man I sing, who forced by fate. Dryden had a great ear for this. So although the underlying structure is the so-called iambic, de-dum, 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 you can be very flexible with this, and Dryden is, and very clever with it, beginning with that dactylic dum-diddy-dum in the way that both Virgil and Homer does when they start their epics. So what about this melody? I mean, this is something in which I'm currently engaged in my research project, is uh, uncovering what these documents of ancient melody tell us, but also uncovering things that haven't yet been fully explored in the nature of the Greek language. Uh, So if indeed Homer sang his rhythms, and we know those rhythms, and his voice went up in certain places where the words naturally go up, and if we can then reconstruct, which we can probably, the four notes to which his four-stringed lyre was tuned, we can more or less work out what his singing sounded like. That's a fantastic thought. We can actually hear again how Homer sang and how his siren songs were supposed to have sounded as well. Um, And some terrific scholarship has been done on this. And what it shows is something incredibly exciting. Statistical analysis of Homer's text, these 30,000-odd lines of the epic, show that the positioning of the accents, and these (coughs) accents are recorded by marks like the agrave and the acute and the circumflex, the positioning of those accents in the text of Homer is not random. Statistically, they have significance, particularly in the middle and at the ends of lines where you would expect there to be an effect, a melodic effect. So, broadly speaking, most of Homer's lines fall off melodically. There isn't an accented syllable at the very end there's a kind of cadence and if we talk about the notes to which 
Homer would be singing, which we can work out. The Greeks were actually extremely detailed about their melodies. We have long treatises with very mathematically precise indications of relative intervals. We can recreate their scales as they themselves would have heard them because they tell us in enormous detail that this is exactly the interval, say 243 over 212, of that particular tone or semitone. That's the kind... I mean, they were mathematicians, and Ptolemy, who was a great mathematician, was also a great musical theorist. So we have to work back from all this theory, which is later, to hear these scales and to hear these sounds. So my final question, then, is what difference, now that we think we can do that, does this make to our understanding of Greek poetry? Now, if you ask somebody, what difference does the music make to the words of Wilhelm Müller, who wrote the poetry for the Schubert, Winterreiser, or the words of Da Ponte, or the music that Mozart makes to the, the libretti of Da Ponte, or Verdi and Boito, all these different music plus poetry combinations. Most people say, well, of course, the music makes all the difference. I mean, really, the libretti, the words are not generally that important compared to the melodic and rhythmical realisation. In, in ancient Greek, the ancient Greek context, there seems to be a clear consensus that it was the other way around, that really ma- what mattered is the words, the words that we still study, the poetry that we still read and analyse and think about, the music was not subjected to the same kind of attempt to preserve it until quite late. Part of the reason for that was that it's much harder to find a system for notating music. As we know, it took many centuries before <coughs> the, the staff system came into, into being. Um, but also, another reason is that music in most cultures is something that is traditional, orally transmitted, and variable. No performance is the same. No, in fact, stanza, from stanza to stanza of an ancient musical song, it wouldn't have been identical. So we're not looking for something that requires notation. So when we talk about what difference would the music have made? Well, first of all, we say, well, of course, the meter, that is the rhythms of these poems, I've given you a couple of simple ones, iambic and dactylic. Ah, there are wonderful rhythms which um, uh, the so-called lyric poets use, the ones who sang their songs to the lyre. They might have a rhythm like, pattern like, short, short, long, short, short, long, short, long, da-da-da, 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 continuously. With variants of that. But um, that will make a difference because that will add all kinds of effects and expression to the way the words are heard and understood. The melody, too, will do that. Where we have these scraps of ancient melody that we can hear again, we discover that they were significant. I mean, is this surprising? No. Ancient Greek melody was significant as ancient Greek rhythm was. And I will just end by mentioning uh, a scrap from one of the earliest papyrus fragments that we have, which probably goes back to Euripides in the 5th century BC, the tragedian, um, 
a fragment of his play, The Orestes, where the chorus are singing. And they're using words like, I lament and I beseech. And we find that the melody to which uh, these words are set has a falling cadence. In Greek, kat olopyromai, I lament kat olopyromai, going down like that. And katiketeromai, I beseech. And then there's a word which means uh, that the, well, it's, this is about Orestes who's killed his mother and his mother's blood says the chorus makes your heart leap like a bacchant, like a crazed woman in Greek anabakhewe and the music, the melody to which that is set leaps a fifth anabakhewe so when the chorus were singing, when they were lamenting there was a falling cadence this is 5th century BC Papyrus is from around 300, but it no doubt records very precisely what Euripides was doing. And when, when, the, mu- when the heart leaps, the music leaps as well, melodically. Now, this is a hugely important finding because it suggests that this kind of so-called program music was the key to what was going on at that particular period. But it also <coughs> makes very clear that the foundations of our understanding of the effects of music are already there two and a half thousand years ago. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> try and set this thing up before I start talking. can't promise anything but that should work I'm going to talk about sound and meaning in song Um, um, like anyone when I'm going around I'm often asked what what I do what I do for a living and it's often easiest to say that I'm an opera singer to give some idea of what it is that I do otherwise there's a lot of explaining to go through what is a classical singer, what, what do you sing, etc., etc. And in fact, in the introduction, um, Richard introduced me as an opera singer, and I don't actually sing very much opera. Uh, I do sing it, but I spend at least half my time singing songs. Songs with piano, songs with orchestra, uh, musical settings of pre-existing, mostly literary texts uh, of greater or lesser quality. The texts, I mean... Um, the practice is pretty much encoded in the idea of lyric poetry. Poetry written to be performed, as we've heard, to the accompaniment of a notional lyre. Poetry that is notionally incomplete without its attendant music. This very romantic idea was expressed perfectly by Wilhelm Müller, the poet of Schubert's two great song cycles, Die Schöne Müllerin, The Beautiful Miller Girl, and Winterreiser, Winter Journey. Müller, incidentally, never met Schubert and never heard any of the Müller songs that Schubert wrote. Müller wrote in his diary, I can neither play nor sing, yet when I write verses, I sing and play after all. If I could produce the melodies, 
my songs would be more pleasing than they are now. But courage. Perhaps there is a kindred spirit somewhere who will hear the tunes behind the words and give them back to me. That was in 1815 in, in his diary. And he was on the same track in 1822 in a letter to the composer Bernhard Josef Klein. For indeed my songs lead but a half life, a paper existence of black and white, until music breathes life into them, or at least calls it forth and awakens it, if it is already dormant in them. Opera and song, and the richest classical song tradition is surely the German, the leader tradition represented by composers like Schubert, Schumann, Wolf and Brahms. These two areas, opera and song, are often supposed to be miles apart in their aesthetic. Opera is sound and fury, drama and extremity, and often the words don't matter too much, we're told. Look at Tolstoy's hilarious and disapproving account of an opera performance in War and Peace. No words understood, no meaning, no sense, waves of emotional excess. The lead, the song, is a purer thing, we are led to believe. Just as the composer Ugo Wolf claimed to write his songs by repeating the poem over and over again until the music came, the ideal leader singer should first read the poem and then allow the music to emerge as a natural and essentially non-dramatic take on the words. I don't believe this view of song singing as some sort of exegesis for a second. Uh, this is how I fell in love with German song, aged 14. A father rides through the night with his son in his arms. The child is terrified by visions of the seductive king of the elves. The narrator, yeah? Telling us what's going on. The father. The son. Father. The Earl King. Thank you. 
wish we could have it all, but... Um, that was played to me in a German lesson when I could barely speak German. It's probably my first German lesson. And I was given, as I just gave to you, the barest outline of the plot. And the German teacher knew what he was doing because not only did I fall in love with the song and with the sound of the singer-pianist ensemble, Dietrich Fischer-Dieskau and Gerald Moore, but I fell in love with the sound of the German language. The responsible leader singer, far from the vulgarity of the opera stage, is bound, we are told, to present the text, not inhabit or embody its drama. But what really makes the impact, as far as I'm concerned, is the sound of the piece, of its pitches and notated rhythms, but also of the words, the bone and gristle of them, plosives, fricatives, diphthongs, labials, and the negotiation between the correctly pitched voice and the tearing, keening, howling sound which the human voice can make quite beyond all merely polite music-making. So when, as a singer of song, I do something special with a particular word, colouring the word, we often call it, it may be to point the meaning in a particular way, but it may also, and is probably more likely to be, to make a sort of verbal music. Musicology has been such a technical, highfalutin and austere discipline that it has often forgotten this. The new wave of musicology, which takes performance as the real and backs away from the academic vision of the score as some sort of platonic ideal, is bound, surely, to take this more into account, and it does so as it looks at actual sounds and practices rather than notes and words in step with the early music movement which has restored rhetoric and the rasp of the gut string to an honoured place. Of course, it's a question of balance. Opera is about words too, but words coming and going in comprehensibility, as the great opera composers understood, are not ironed out into a semantic uniformity by the curse of the supertitle, which also ensures that we're arguably engaging exactly the wrong part of the brain while attending to the performance. Leader singing is as much a dramatic form, if often an interior and intimate one, as opera. But we cannot conceive of leader singing as the presentation and musical explication of great poetry, if only because some of the poetry is, by any measure, embarrassingly bad. Erlkönig is one of the great poems in the German canon by the central figure in German literature, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. This song... Der Zwerg, the dwarf, sets a poem which on its own could be read as, a, as gothic bizarrerie or mawkish sadomasochism. A dwarf and his queen on deck at sea. He accuses her of betraying him with the king. She pleads. He strangles her with ein Schnur von roter Seide, a cord of red silk. And keine Küster wird er je mehr landen, on no coast will he land, not ever. Oh. 
the narrator again, we're on the sea. we could have the whole thing. Um, of course, in any performance, any sung performance, it's best if we can follow the words from the singer's lips, because then we have a human connection with them and a continuity of attention. But sometimes the sound of the words, allied to a vaguely understood narr narrative or an affect, is more important than their detailed meaning. That they mean something is crucial, what they mean sometimes less so. Thank you. Thank you very much, um, three of you. Now, just to kick off um, our discussion, our, our panel discussion, before we, we open up to question and answer, um, it seems to me, listening to you, that we've been discussing sort of two sets of themes. One is the common foundations of poetry and music. So the fact that both poetry and music, as Fiona explained, are both structured through time, and that rhythm is the core, as Armand tells us, of both music and poetry. But we've also been touching on, in both what Armand and Ian have been talking about, how, about how much each of the different art forms need the other to be complete, um, and, and Muller's great um, statements on that. And my question to start the discussion was going to be this. How much in the combinations of music and poetry that we've been discussing, how rare is it to get a union of equals? Um, 
It strikes me that if you think, for example, of Britain's war requiem, it arguably is a union of equals. You have the wonderful poetry of Wilfred Owen and the searing the music of, of, of Britain. But in my humble opinion, if you listen to some of the operas of Mozart, the libretto is as silly as the music is sublime. So, and perhaps there's an analogy here with film and music. Um, every pop song now comes with videos, some of them rather incidental, some, um, and every film is accompanied by music, some of which seems to have very little to do with the meaning of the film. How rare is it that the two art forms, film and music, and by analogy, music and poetry, are actually a combination of equals and, and really working with each other um, to, be, to be something wonderful? And is that when we get the most wonderful combinations? That's my opening question to you. Do you want to take that in first? Um. I think the example for me of that last song, which is a terrible poem, um, it isn't a great song uh, despite the poem. It somehow grabs the poem and transforms it in, in, in a union into something amazing as a whole. Uh, and there is, there's a lot of music, certainly in the English tradition, that's incredibly respectful of uh, verse. I think particularly of Gerald Finzi. I've just sung a piece of his called Dies Natalis, which is a wonderful text by... Um, oh, golly, hang on. Anyway, dear Smithollis. Um, I've gone blank. Um, it will come back to me in a minute. Um, and Finzi is so... I mean, it is a wonderful piece, but he's essentially, in the way also he sets Thomas Hardy, he's very respectful of the verse, too respectful. Uh, I think the shift, perhaps, between the, the, the way melodies was used, I don't know, in, in, by Greek poets or by Finzi to something that Schubert does where he grabs something, he sort of he body snatches it, he eviscerates it, he recreates it which is also something that uh, the Britain does, Britain does that with the poems of John Donne for example, he, he takes them, he gets an idea out of the poem and then he, he subjects the poet to the force of his own musical imagination um, I think what's interesting is that there are of course uh, different traditions of music making in the sense of melodization and rhythmicization and text making um, and they've grown independent of each other so that you can have a great poem which could be set to music ideally by a great composer but would that really make a difference I mean I take Ian's point at the end there you know, is it really about what is being said precisely or about all those other effects that a great musician Schubert or whoever is trying to bring across with the very sounds of the words. So I think there is a difference between the semantic content and the palpable content of, um, of sung music that allows great poetry to be self-sufficient, even if it's set to some fairly banal kind of, or repetitive music, um, as I think would have been, we would find was the case with Homer, great poetry set to music, which we would say has no enormous melodic sophistication, some, uh, some rhythmic and melodic sophistication, but not of the kind that we find, say, in the Winterizer. Um, and then, on the other side, there, there's a kind of uh, less interesting text, which we wouldn't study as poetry, which can then be set to sublime melodic uh, rhythmic combinations. So I'm not sure about the need 
for a really great work of art to combine both the kind of Gesamtkunstwerk or whatever it is. Well, I mean, interestingly, because you know, Wagner thinks about that as being what he's doing, creating this total work of art, and of course that goes back to ancient Greek tragedy, where we have great texts, and if they survived, arguably great music. So it is possible, maybe, that there was a period, or there have been periods, in which people can say both are equally interesting and worthy of, as it were, study and constant attention in their own right. Uh, but I don't think it's necessary. I don't think one should underestimate the greed of the maker. I mean, sometimes the maker, and in this case I think we're often thinking about the composer because the music tends to come chronologically after the words. Um, sometimes it's Britain seizing some, some amazing bit inside, um, like lightweight dirge or something and and making it his own and sometimes that greed takes the form of um, seeing room for manoeuvre in a kind of more partial piece of work so so there's more than one way to be greedy Mm -hmm. and if it were really a case of total artwork then we'd say our greatest of all sort of leader writer was Ivor Gurney because he could do both and yet for me the, 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 the leader by Gurney's I like best uh, when he's setting someone else like um, I'll go with my father a ploughing or something so I, I think that we have to I mean poets tend to be very protective about their texts and not like the notion that, that they're being stolen by some of the kind of clashing of egos and, and, and you know there is this sense that well it's already got its own music why, why does it need someone else to supply music so you have to kind of surrender the text and let it have a different life so I think we have to somehow avoid getting mm hung up on that notion of great equality. I mean, I think for, um, Benjamin Britten, again, is a really good example. When he tried to work with great writers, it didn't work as well. Working with Auden was not the great success mm. for him um, in terms of opera. Working with Ian Forster, he, it's a great opera, but it's, it's not a great libretto. The great librettos for Britten were by somebody who was barely a writer at all, Miss Henry Piper, mm. because he could use her words uh, and could, could mould them, and she knew what he needed. Um, and that, that was much more significant anyway. It was Thomas Trahan, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so in a, in a way, what you're saying, all of you, is that the greatest poetry is, is the poetry that incorporates music in itself, and it's, that's part of what makes it great poetry, and, the, and, and wonderful opera is opera that perhaps uses the words for its musical effect as much as for its semantic effect. Yeah, I, mean, I, I mean, just coming back to what I said, I think that there, there is a distinction between different ways in which this kind of great poetry stroke music can present itself. So um, going back to, to the 5th century BC, as I'm afraid I have to do all the time, um, Euripides was one of the great writers of the period, and his tragedies became the most popular dramas that survived in the ancient world for many centuries and he was said to have collaborated with the greatest musician of the period the man at the forefront the Benjamin Britten of his time who no, nobody's ever heard of you won't have heard of I don't think his name was Timotheus of Miletus and we ha- actually have a few bits of Timotheus's poetry and they seem to be drivel <laughs> Um, words used in a jumble of senses very lacking in syntax and there's a a bit of an attempt to rehabilitate him as a poet now now, just recently but 
when we first discovered, and we knew about this man, Timotheus, and one of the reasons we knew about him, as uh, scholars knew about him, was because his music was sung more or less continuously for about 500 years. I mean, he was uh, operative at the end of the 5th century BC, and we have inscriptions of people singing his music in places like Arcadia in Greece from hundreds of years later. Now, if any music survives 500 years, it's an extraordinary thing. It must have been really special, the music of Timotheus. And we know he collaborated with Euripides, and that Euripides' tragedies used Timothean styles of music. But unfortunately, as I say, what we have are two separate traditions, one in which we then have great poets on the one hand and great musicians on the other, in this case one who hasn't survived. So I think that there are times when they can come together, but um, what survives and what people decide is worth preserving maybe one or the other. Before we go to question and answer, Ian, did you want to pick up on Aura Armand and on Fiona's points uh, <coughs> about the importance of time and the structure of time? Or should we go straight to question and answer? Um, well, I wanted to say something yes. else in response to your second question, which is about... Um, I thought that Ian's um, point about uh, that it means something, but what it means is not always quite yeah. so important. It's obviously an absolutely crucial distinction. It's also a crucial distinction for just reading and listening to poetry. Mm-hmm. I mean, something I'm often saying to, to people is, you know, people say, oh, I didn't understand it all the first time. Well, well why, why would you want it to be over, you know, it, your first experience and there being nothing more to find? That, that doesn't matter. Um, and, and music perhaps is a useful analogy for thinking about poetry, therefore. Wonderful. Now we're going to open up to questions from, from you, the audience. What we're going to do is take three questions at a time. Um, and if you make them short questions, uh, please, not songs or better. Uh, um, and if you could wait crucially for the microphone to get to you, um, that would be great. Thank you. Um, in the front here. Um. When you listen to Fisher Dieskau's um, recording of Disha de Mudarin, he begins and ends it by reciting um, the poem without any music, and then he goes into Schubert's uh, thing. And it, it seems to me when you listen to that, it's just totally different. It's, it's not something you really want to listen to. It's, it's Schubert's supreme genius that makes it into a dramatic wonderful whole work of art which uses the poetry as the structure on which to hang it. And by the same token, when you come to someone like Shakespeare, very few people have actually succeeded in setting Shakespeare to really, truly memorable music. I mean, they've been inspired by him to write operas because of the the dramatic scenario, but his poetry has really resisted um, attempts to musify it. Thank you. Um, and the gentleman over here. I'd like to volunteer as a uh, union of a great poet and a great composer uh, in, the whole, in the whole song cycle tradition. I don't think there's anything that can match it. Sorry, what was the name again? Dichterliebe. Mm. The poems by Heine, the music by Schumann. And... Um, Question. Okay, uh, just here. You've been talking about p- 
poetry and, <coughs> and music uh, together, but they are, they are also very often totally separate. But one often talks about the language of music, and in a sense there's a sort of emotional language in music and an emotional language in poetry that both seem to me to call for interpretation in presentation. And if, if you're, I think it picks up a point that Fiona was making, that sometimes if you find poetry rather dense, it becomes much more transparent when you try to read it properly. Mm. And I think the same may be true for music. Do you want to start with um, in a way, the first two questions, I think, have a connection um, because the, the, the issue is really whether music does irony. Uh, the, the, the Liederspiel, the sort of little parlor game that was the original Die Schöne Müllerin, which, which Wilhelm Müller put together for some friends to act, it was a sort of faux-naive story about a Miller boy falling in love with a girl, or the huntsman comes along, and uh, he throws him, uh, the, the Miller boy throws himself in the, in the mill race. And there's a sort of ironic commentary. There's a lot about the girl. It's, 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 it's sentimental in, um, in um, Schiller's sense rather than naive. And what Schubert did was to cut the prologue and the epilogue and to make the appearances of the Miller girl as small as possible and basically remove any sense of irony in the piece so that the, uh, the piece becomes still sort of naive, naive, almost faux naive, but it also plums the depths of sort of, you know, the relationship between sex and death. But it doesn't do irony. And similarly, with Dieterle, the people have complained. Dieterle, the poet's love. Schumann, who is the most literary of composers, and you can't believe that he didn't get the fact that Heine was a poet of extreme irony. But does the music... Uh, in Dichterliebe reflect the irony. There's of, often a complaint that it doesn't, and there's often a complaint that Schumann misunderstands Heine, which I don't think can possibly be true, and I think it's very patronising. But I think perhaps what we have to remember is that in a piece like Dichterliebe, we, we do want to hear the words because the words maintain the irony and the music exists in counterpoint with the irony. It's not the same as with Schubert, where Schubert removes the irony altogether, I think. Um, I totally agree about Shakespeare and poetry, and I was trying to put together a programme, actually, for a programme of songs for next year, and it's very difficult to find great Shakespeare settings. I think with the operas, there are great settings. There's Midsummer Night's Dream of Britain, and there's The Addis Tempest, and there are other examples, I think. Um, Fiona? Uh, no, but I wanted to uh, maybe um, address your point. I, I, I couldn't agree more that I think that um, the, third, the third question that um, I think music and poetry share very importantly this um, uh, capacity to meaning-make, which is non-denotative, non-representational meaning, but it's nevertheless meaning. Um, and it isn't only emotional, though I think that's one example. I think very often it's not emotion, but the meaning of music is nevertheless meaning. So in other words, the meaning of music is kind of music. So it's, it's profoundly experiential. It hasn't even got to the point of kind of being paraphrasable. And um, uh, one aspect of the way I'm very interested in, in the kind of musical 
character poetry is that I'm trying to think about um, how that can work in poetry too, because I think quite a lot of the work that poetry does is it's it's much more than the, the its burden, as we used to see the old-fashioned word for message. Yeah. Yeah. So, so are you saying essentially that the pleasure of working at interpreting no. is, is part of the pleasure of both music and art? Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. I think it is, but it, I'm not, that's, that's not for me the essential thing. That's, yeah. a, that's a byproduct. I think that... Um, I think that we don't have any problem saying that looking at, for example, an abstract painting, even though there's the kind of my six-year-old could do it at school of response, um, I think we don't have any problem with seeing that a kind of swirl of red is, um, is, is a thing in itself and is significant. We allow ourselves to say it is significant and not say it is very angry painting or... Um, it is two-thirds of the painting, or, or, or otherwise move away from the thing itself. And I think that somehow releasing ourselves into that happeningness of music um, and also of poetry allows us to get beyond um, this notion. You know, a lot of uh, new philosophy of music is all about, well, you know, kind of somehow music is meaningful, and they're always looking for meaning in the sense of denotation. Um, yeah. I, think, I think it also might help to make a distinction between the music of a poem and the kind of music that you might attach to a poem. So within a poem, by Heine, say, there is already music. So we've already, there is already a kind of rhythm. There's already a kind of expression that is purely sonic. Um, and that also can be brought out by a particular performance or a particular recitation of Du bist wie eine Blume, or something like that. And it's something that actually sounds musical in a broad sense because it's rhythmical and that rhythm is brought out, so schön und hart und rein. So, you know, a faster opening line followed by a slower succeeding <coughs> line already has a kind of musicality to it. But that's very different from then saying, let's set it mm. to a musical setting in which the music itself has non-denotative meaning. Mm. Uh, so the melody and the rhythm already says something different. I mean, in some ways, there's going to be an excess mm. of meaning-making if you try to put it all together. Mm. And in a way, I think that maybe does help to answer the question why there aren't great musical settings of Shakespeare and why, you know, in, in some cases, the libretti are just rather banal, but the music is sublime. Yeah, I mean, Shakespeare, Shakespeare is so overloaded with meaning. Um, yeah, <coughs> it adds more to it. Um, and it's interesting, I mean, when, when Adders did The Tempest, he didn't want to work with Shakespeare, he wanted to work with something much more straightforward. He found the idea of setting Shakespeare to music very uh, difficult, I think. I think Schumann's music destroyed, certainly does destroy one aspect of the music of Heine, which is the, the sort of typical jingle-jangle deflating rhyme thing which, which yeah. Heine has. You don't hear that at all when you listen to the music. If it is a jingle-jangle deflating rhyme, yeah. if that's what... I mean, because it could be, yeah. but it could be read in a much more solemn fashion. Yes, yeah. yeah. So, again, the performance does, yeah. you know... And following on from that Shakespeare thing, I mean, it's notable, isn't it, that contemporary poets who um, are also librettists like Michael Simmons Roberts for James Macmillan or um, David Harson for Harry Birtwistle, they write a more keened out text for a libretto. There's less going on per half line in their libretti 
than there is in their freestanding verse. Uh, there was a question over this corner. Uh, yes, I'd like to bring into the discussion Robert Burns because uh, it seems to me that he was someone who very deliberately wrote his work both to be spoken and to be sung. And my own view is that you don't get the full experience um, of one of Burns' poems, well, the ones that he wrote with that dual purpose. You don't get the full experience unless you have heard it both sung and spoken. And I think this is to do with the different rhythmic potentials between music and language. So, for example, um, my love is like a red, red rose. If, in, if you're going to sing that, you more or less know how the melody's going to go. It's pretty standard. If you're going to speak, my love is like a red, red rose, there are all sorts of things rhythmically that you can do that don't fit the melody at all. So I think each has interpretive possibilities that are not open in the other. And I think if one's looking at this... Uh, relationship between music and poetry that Burns is a really good figure to consider for that reason because there's so much there. Thank you. Mm. So, lady here, did you ask a question? Interesting. Okay. Oh, sorry. I wanted to ask uh, if you could think about the simplicity complexity ratio. Um, that the more complicated the structure originally, the musical structure in a song, the less likely that there will be room for a composer, I mean, in a, in a poem, the less likely that there will be room for a composer to find space within that structure for his own interpretation, sound making, and so on and so forth. Uh, because the American poet Donald Justice, once he wrote operas, he wrote songs, and he was a fine poet. But he said there, it, there always had to be something enough missing in the poem so that there was room for the composer. And if that didn't happen, you couldn't operate. But I just wanted to say one second thing. Music is enormously effective in Shakespeare. When you think of what happens in Fear No More, The Heat of the Sun, the song in Simplin, or if you think about the last song in Twelfth Night, that, that music enters Shakespeare on stage enormously effectively. But it seems to me it's always within structures that are quite a bit more simple. You couldn't imagine putting a, you couldn't imagine putting one of Lear's speeches, for instance, to musical to musical text. So it seems to me the more complete and the more complex the discourse within the poetry, the more it's in command of complex structures of meaning and sound, the less likely there would be that there's room for a composer as well. So if you could comment. One more question. Um, gentlemen. Thanks. Um, I had a question about a point that Fiona raised about um, harmonious or pleasing proportions that are observed in, in architecture and um, music and also poetry. And my question was about how how broadly we might observe that to be a common foundation between, between music and poetry as, a, as opposed to um, kind of very specific or deliberately placed. Um, and perhaps, Amand, I was wondering if you could comment um, in the context of classical literature, whether, for instance, in the, in the uh, pentameters or the 
um, the, the complex structures that you were referring to, whether that there were kind of harmonious proportions to be observed there. Do you want to start there, Fiona? Um, thank you. I absolutely agreed with your point about Donald Justice and complexity and simplicity and leaving space for composers, but I also think that sometimes even within just a poem by itself, there's a kind of payoff between complexity of thought and complexity of language and diction, let's say, for example. I think that's hugely interesting, but I can feel myself moving away from thinking about music when I'm just thinking about poems and in my response to that. But thank you very much. I thought it's a great point, and I thought I agreed absolutely about the, the Robert Burns. Um, so obviously the harmonious proportions is not... It, it's not my insight. I, it's, you know, it's, a, it, it's a traditional way of thinking about um, music. Um, but, uh, I, yes, I mean, I, you know, it's, my research so far suggests, one could say, that um, proportion is a pretty, pretty, pretty fundamental to any kind of abstract form. I mean, the most fundamental type of abstract form is kind of a kind of balance between big and small or between equals or between thin and broad. I mean, it's, like, it's a kind of comparative. Otherwise, there's no... There's no form. There's just itness, as it were. Um, so, sonnet, sonnet turn, for example, is a is a beautiful balance. You know, eight and six is a is a beautiful balance. So, um, I think it, I think all sorts of beautiful, let's say, proportion. That's to say, at the very least, proportions that we have come to find through use comfortable and familiar, and therefore they give us a recognition bonus when they come when we come across them, even if we come across them unconsciously. There's a kind of sense of ease. Oh yes, that feels right. We say um, that that I think that that's really prevalent in our practice. Certainly, our practice as listeners, and also our practice as makers. Yes. Um, well, very quickly because I, I thought all the points were really great. And um, yes, my love is like a red, red rose. Um, <laughs> yes, uh, in a sense, though, there's a very standard conventional kind of rhythm to that. Back to your kind of idea that it's just a sort of... Yeah, in a sense, rhythmically, it's not terribly interesting. Uh, there's a great translation of, of an ancient Greek poem by a 19th century schoolmaster called William Johnson Corey. They told me, Heraclitus, they told me you were dead. They brought me bitter news to hear and bitter tears to shed. So it's the same rhythm, but it sounds wonderful. <laughs> um, so, uh, so, so, I mean, point taken there, absolutely, this is, I felt, what, what I was saying about the complexity ratio to the simplicity. But just to get finally onto the, the idea of proportion, yeah, it's all about form. Form, in a larger sense, crucial. Uh, whether or not you can say, look, it's all Fibonacci ratios and all those wonderful Palladian architectural ones. Yeah, a lot of people do that kind of thing, say, with the form of the Iliad. You know, they'll look at it in great detail. People have done it on Plato and so on, counted the syllables and said, you know, at this point of the Fibonacci ratio, you have Plato using the word ariter, which means excellent. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, back to the Bible code and the Plato code. So, so I'm not a great believer in, 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 in precision. In that. I, I agree entirely with you. It's about the feel of the form in the broader sense, but also... In the smaller sense, I mean, an example I would give is, is you know, the, the hexameter that I talk about, which essentially is six bars, you might say, consisting of a dum diddy. So it might be 
dum diddy dum diddy dum 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 diddy dum diddy dum dum but it never is because that splits it into directly into two and the poets never do that they don't want that jingle effect so they don't go dum diddy dum diddy dum 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 diddy dum diddy dum dum they go something like dum diddy dum diddy dum diddy dum diddy dum diddy dum dum or dum diddy dum diddy dum diddy dum diddy dum diddy dum dum so it's always perhaps again Fibonacci on one side or another but that's terribly <laughs> crucial to the effect of each individual verse um, just on the point of complexity I think there are some miraculous examples and I, I go back to Britain of setting very very complex verse that you wouldn't believe could be successfully set but I mean for me the settings of Dung the, setting, the settings of Hardy winter words uh, the setting of Keats's sonnet Sleep at the end of the Britain Serenade and even, it's a much odder piece but the setting of a Shakespeare sonnet at the end of the Nocturne is extraordinary so I, th I, I don't think I think it's possible if you're a really great composer to make a success of that um, the question about harmonious proportions, I think it's, it's interesting that, that I've been reading a lot of the work of the musicologist Nicholas Cook who draws on a lot of research of what you know, what audiences actually perceive and notice, uh, even highly educated, musicologically educated audiences don't really notice all the things that musicologists have written about and that they're supposed to notice. Uh, they have very low attention span. Tend to, the experience tends to, tends to be uh, not of great arches and not of, not of these uh, harmonious proportions in the broad sense, but I think maybe harmonious proportions work better, as you say, if they're unconscious, they're more effective than if we can name them. They, yeah. work, they work kind of secretly. Yeah, I mean, an audience, you say, wouldn't pick those things up consciously, but mm. surely the point is they are picking them up unconsciously. Or, yes. uh, they don't have to be musically logically aware either yes. to, to get a sense of you know, we're coming towards a conclusion yes. at the yeah. end of the symphony. Yeah. If things are beginning to draw together, or whatever it is. Yeah. Sonata form, for example. Yeah. Something that we pick up if we have some, obviously, some knowledge of the tradition. Yeah. Now, one person will be waiting very patiently right now. I see lots of hands going up. But, um, uh, was waiting very patient here for a question. Yeah, the gentleman with the yellow. Yes. Um, <coughs> I've fascinated it, of with the discussions of how music and poetry can enhance and interplay with each other. But then I heard the, um, the Earl King, and before the poetry even begins, there's this extraordinary music, and your shivers start going up and down your spine, and then the narrator comes in, and then you hear the, the, the conversation between the son and the father. And there's a sense in which here the music is played off against the poetry, not just with it. And I wonder if you could comment on, on what it would be like, for example, if the Earl King didn't have an introduction. It started right out with the narrator, narrator and, the, and the music behind it. I think that would make an entirely different aesthetic piece. So that music here is played against it in a way, or I'd like to, can you comment? Okay, just one more. Do you want to ask a question? Yeah. Just next door to you. Now, this is the last question. Yes, yours. Yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> yes, no, you need a microphone. I'm the right yeah. person. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you very much for your contributions. I really have a great deal to take away. And 
I was reminded of a statement by Martin Buber, who talks about if someone can't raise their voice and someone else comes along and can raise their voice, then the first person can raise their voice too. And that's the secret of the bond between spirit and spirit. What I would love to hear you speak about, because it it feels like it's been said but not spoken, is relationship. Because quite frequently our discussion has moved back to an interiority. Whilst there have been tantalizing hints in everything that you have said about the presence of the other, uh, whether it is in the encounter with the audience or in the, re- the, the coexistence of the word between the recipient and the speaker, mm. and in various ways in how you have spoken too about the unconscious connection. So I would just love to hear you speak about the presence of the other. Right, so just Thank you. A few summing up comments from, from each of you, starting with those lovely questions to end with. Um, Arnold, do you want to start? Okay, well, um, just to take the last one. When Richard introduced this session, he said, well, you know, music can be like poetry. It can be something you can listen to on your own. <laughs> poetry, uh, you know, this actually is so alien to what, in the ancient world, poetry and song were. I mean, everything was about the performance, the public experience. There is no, no, no sense of a private... You don't read a poem, well, certainly not in those four centuries I'm talking about. You know, you, you hear one. You usually hear one on a particular occasion, uh, but it's about this communication. I mean, in a sense, the audience does help co-create the poetry. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm very strongly... I very strongly feel that the audience makes an enormous contribution to the what it is to make the piece of work that you're making when you perform a piece of music. Um, I mean, Britain talks about the holy triangle between the, the composer, the, the performer, and the audience. And every time I perform, I'm, you know, I'm often asked, how, how is it different? And it's different because the audience gives you something back, and the audience helps you create the meaning of whatever it, of whatever it is. The odd thing about that is with a piece like Winterizer, it's not clear that it was actually written to be performed in that way. Um, it wasn't performed as a piece in public until the 1850s or the 1860s. It was probably written for people to have at home, maybe to form a little bit to, them, to, to each other at home, but also just to sit at the piano and probably play along to it and sing it to themselves. So maybe that's something we've developed more. Um, the thing about uh, if it had no introduction, I mean, it's... The introduction clearly meet. I mean, in, in Elkanish, as in so many Schubert songs, it's clearly an idea that he's got from the poem, and that we we sort of recognise because we know maybe we know the poem, we know the title. It's it's the ride, in the same way that in Kletchen am Spinnerade, it's it we know it's a Spinnerade because we've got that in the title of the song and we hear it. So, um, no, I mean, the introduction is often absolutely crucial in a Schubert song like that. Um, yes, I was going to uh, sort of thank you for your comment about the introduction and suggest you have a look at the winter journey because there are several songs in winter as were Ian talks about the piano introduction before he gets to the, the singing bit. So, um, and yeah, I couldn't agree more about co-creation, but since I just um, bore, I won't bore myself and therefore by extension you by repeating um, uh, a, a, a whole lecture I just gave on I, I believe passionately in, in that it's co-creation. Um, but I will say that um, listening to Earl King, now th- that moment of you switching it on and um, 
it's sort of like being in a class, we're in a class, as it were, a classroom, aren't we? We're in a lecture theatre, and the astonishingness of hearing music in what seems to me an unmusical context mm-hmm. just reminded me of the same thing at school, actually. And, and, but it also then made me think about my own Damascene experience, which was being very small, and um, our primary school headmaster reading Dylan Thomas to us, and I was six, and I didn't know what was going on, but I knew that it was astonishing. It was profoundly experiential. Can I just say, bah, 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 bah. when you hear that at the beginning, your heart starts beating faster. It just has to. <laughs> well, well, thank you all. I, um, this, I think the co-creation of the audience and speakers has certainly made this session what it is, and I'd like you all to thank Ian Bostridge, um, Armand Dangor, and Fiona Sampson. <laughs>